Hi guys. In the last podcast, we left Hedda recently arrived in Belgium um, with her family in Brussels, faced with the sort of failure of their plan to leave to Australia. They they were just too late. The world was at war, and there was not going to be a boat to take them to their new life in Australia. So I thought I'd start this uh, podcast about the 1940s and Hedda's life by actually telling you what I knew about this before I started researching. What I knew about the 1940s was from my grandmother, Ruth, Hedda's daughter. Ruth had had to come back to Belgium. Well, not come back. She'd never been there. She was, she'd been in London. I, I don't know if you remember. She'd been sent to London in early 1939 to um, go to school there and live with one of her uncles. But once... Britain declared war on Germany. Britain considered all German citizens living in England enemies, not unlike what happened with Japanese Americans in the US. The British rounded up German citizens in England and put them in internment camps. Never mind that Ruth was a 16-year-old German refugee who had to leave Germany because she was Jewish. In the eyes of the British government, she was German, and therefore she was an enemy. And so she boarded a, uh, a ferry and, and joined her parents in Brussels, a place that wasn't home to her, right? She'd never been there. She'd left Berlin. Um, and she joined her parents there. And the to- story she told me was that she missed Britain very much in the 40s because she loved it there, but that she soon met the man of her life, my grandfather, Leonardus, and... Um, and they, they were madly in love, and they immediately started having children during the war. And so, you know, she met him at, uh, at a concert, and she told me that, eh, you know, the war in, in, in Brussels, it really wasn't so bad. She happily, she said, so she said, happily wore her yellow star and rode her bicycle and fell in love and had four children by the time the decade was over. So I had this perspective on life in Brussels during the war, um, that was not exactly accurate. Because as I've been doing research on Hedda's life and looking at documents that she left behind and, and reading through some of the things that an uncle of mine has been put together, it seems that what happened is that my grandmother Ruth was shielded from the harshest realities of life under German occupation in Belgium. And she might have also been completely... Um, you're sort of in, 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 a, in, a, in a haze of, of love, lust, and happiness. Her parents protected her from the harsh realities, and maybe she was young enough not to notice. You know, how many of us have been so preoccupied with our own existences that we don't notice our parents' struggle? It's easy to only think about yourself, about, you know, your girlfriend or your boyfriend and the next party you're going to go to, and I suspect that... That was my grandmother during World War II, which is such a strange thing to say, but I think she was kind of oblivious to the risks that people around her were taking in order to make sure she had as happy a life as possible. It's either that, or she knew how bad it was, and she completely blocked it from her mind after the war, which is uh, another way of dealing with trauma, right, is that you just erase it. But anyway, I've had to, in a sense, relive the trauma of the war because I didn't know about it. So let me tell you how the 1940s go for Hedda. Um, 
so the first thing they do once they realize they're not going to go to Australia and that the world is at war is they have to figure out how to get their daughter back from London, right? So one of the first things was mobilizing to get her back and figuring out where to live and how to live. Now, the Germans invaded Belgium, and not all German soldiers are equally um, well-trained or equally capable of fulfilling the wishes of the German government. Um, and it is really largely due, on the one hand, to sort of lackadaisical German soldiers, on the one hand, and the very good contacts that my grand great-grandfather had with the Jewish community that had expatriated itself to Belgium that I think they survived. But both my grandparents, my sorry, my great-grandparents, were twice sent, sort of given orders to report for duty at a work camp from where they would then have been put on a train to Auschwitz. They twice avoided that, that, that reality. Um, but I, I just don't think that you can, I mean, I think the worst thing would have been to be on that train, but I don't think that they managed to avoid it without consequences. I think of Hedda and her outlook on life, which was rather practical, not particularly romantic, you know, in a sense, the same way that she told people not to bother with too many excuses if they couldn't come to her parties. She pretty much told her great-grandchildren not to bother with too many excuses if they couldn't do something she'd asked them to do. She wasn't interested in excuses. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that she was on the edge for five years, the first five years of the 1940s. They moved three or four times because they lived in apartments first where Jews were allowed to live. Then they had to move because Jews were no longer allowed to live in the neighborhoods in which they had moved in. Then they had to hide more than once. And they weren't hiding, they were hiding not because it was illegal to be Jewish or because Jews were being persecuted all the time. But they had to hide when calls were made for Jews to report to be then then taken away. So one of the features of the cruelty of, of sort of the racist policies of the German Reich, the Nazi Reich, was not that um, Jews and anybody who was considered to be you know sort of lesser than the Aryan race were indiscriminately carted out and killed in the street and, and, and tortured for all to see, is that this was done very methodically. People were given notices. They were told, you must report here, and from here you will go somewhere else. And then, in a sense, it was all given a veneer of organization and a veneer of formality and a veneer of legality, right? You were told that you needed to report somewhere. And the one thing that Germans are is they're very good at doing what they've been told. And remember that Hedda might have been Jewish, but she thought of herself, she had, was culturally German. And so when she, if she was told to do something, she would have done it. And so you can imagine the kind of, the, 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 the tension, right, that was, had been building up and then ever since they had to leave Germany, that they realized that essentially the things that they trusted, namely the impartiality of government and the need to follow rules was no longer something they could rely on, right? In fact, government was not impartial, and if they wanted to survive, they could not follow the rules. They had to effectively break them. So twice they were given these notices and asked to, um, to report to a work camp outside of Brussels. The first time, they just didn't go. 
and nobody knew where to find them. So this was the first time they went into hiding. The second time, they were, the Gestapo showed up on their doorstep, and they, um, this was Ernst and Hedda, Robert and Wolfgang, all four of them, were sent to this war camp in Malines outside of Brussels. And they'd been scheduled on uh, train number 23, um, Jeannette was also there. Oh, I forgot to tell you, Jeannette. Um, so Jeannette, Hedda's mother, survives. She is alone in, in Berlin. So I'm saying this with a happy voice, but in fact, um, it's not happy at all. Alexander Zilberman, Hedda's father, um, died in 1941. She, Jeannette had been alone in the big house, as I'd mentioned. And the, the, really, the only way Jeannette had survived that year alone was because the daughter of a shopkeeper whom Jeannette had befriended and had helped study, had paid for her studies in Berlin, had become a, a member of the communist resistance, a very small communist resistance in Berlin, and had helped Jeannette that entire year that she was alone with Alexander. And when Alexander died, and Jeannette at the time was, I think she was 62 years old, maybe, she was still relatively young, got the help of Elizabeth Uchbach, that was her name, uh, who, who essentially sort of mobilized her network to get Jeanette into Brussels. And so it's sort of incomprehensible how the 62-year-old woman who'd spent a year alone in Berlin managed to sneak out of Nazi Germany during the war and find her daughter in Brussels. But she did. So she manages to escape Berlin, arrives in Brussels in 1942, and a couple of months later, they're sent to Malines, and they're all each given a number. Jeanette's number was 98, um, and they're scheduled to get on train number 23 that is heading to Auschwitz. Nobody really knew what Auschwitz was. They wouldn't have known what Auschwitz meant for them. But there was a sense that they really shouldn't have, that getting on that train would be bad. Somehow, somebody intervenes and, and buys them time. And so they're rescheduled, and now they're going to be sent off in, in late April on train, uh, April 43, train number 24. So they've got some time, and the same person who intervenes on their behalf to get them onto this later train um, also continues to intervene and finally gets um, Ernst a job as a member of the Jewish Council in Brussels. Um, and, and that job, um, and I'll explain in a second what that was, actually gets all of them out of the work camp and guarantees that they are not going to be on that train number 24 to Auschwitz. Ultimately, there were 625 people on train 24 to Auschwitz and 43, and only 127 were ever repatriated to Belgium after the war. Um, what did the Jewish Council do? What, what was the need for a Jewish Council in Brussels in occupied Germany? Remember what I told you about the organized nature of German cruelty during the war? The German occupying armies knew that they were, they had to move people around, right? They needed to impose order. They, in fact, had an edict by which Jews were only allowed to live in four cities in Belgium. How were they going to enforce that? Um, it would be difficult uh, for German soldiers to communicate with um French-speaking Belgians. I mean, you know, never mind that you know half of them were German Jews, so they would have been able to talk with them. But essentially, what the soldiers didn't want to do was to have to deal 
with these refugees and these Jews. They didn't want to essentially have to manage it. And so they outsourced this to a Jewish council. So the Jewish council would be the, in a sense, the communication sub. They got orders from the German army and then the Jewish council communicated that to the Jewish population and told them and, and visited the people who were being called upon to um, report for duty, for example. They were the ones that tried to explain what was going on. Um, the Jewish council also had a very um, completely illicit, obviously, um, role in producing massive amounts of fake IDs. And Ruth's future husband was, in fact, actively involved in making all these fake IDs. And so being a member of the Jewish council saved my great-grandfather and my family, but it also meant that someone else went to Auschwitz instead. And that's sort of what I've been dealing with as I've been researching this and telling the story. On the one hand, Ruth's husband was a Belgian soldier who tried to f was part of the efforts to push the Germans back and then was a member of sort of one of the active cells in the Jewish council that you know sort of subverted the intention of the Jewish council as it was designed by the German occupying armies. But at the same time, the fact that my family didn't end up on that train means that someone else's did. And that is really, really difficult. And I'm sharing that with you. Because while I will forever be grateful to my great-grandfather's contacts, his ingenuity and his sheer will to survive, because if he hadn't, well, I wouldn't be here telling you the story. But I think I'm experiencing what people have often referred to as sort of the guilt of survival, the fact that if it wasn't you, it had to be someone else. And that gets us back to why my grandmother would have told me a story of the 1940s that was so far removed from what the records suggest. Either her memory is wrong, or she's actively creating memories that allow her not to think about that part of her story her history. For Hedda, the rest of the 1940s uh, are, are, are complicated. The war ends in 1945, and you'd think, well, that's, that's it. That's great, right? You survived. But, 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 but the post-war isn't necessarily any easier than the war. For starters, um, Robert, her youngest son, falls in love Apparently he was, he, was quite the, he was quite the lover. He had many girlfriends. Um, but one of them particularly broke his heart. And, and it's not exactly sure, not exactly clear what the triggering effects were. But in 1947, Robert commits suicide. He turns on the gas oven, closes the door, and kills himself. And Wolfgang, in 1947 also, and it's not exactly clear if it's related to his brother's suicide or not, decides that he's going to join the volunteer army in, um, in, in Palestine. And in fact, he's there when the state of Israel is declared. And in many ways, you know, this could have been a, a, a really not joyful, but certainly hopeful outcome to the 
trauma that he'd experienced. But that trauma followed him to Palestine. And about five months after he left to be a member of the volunteer armies, he had to be sent back to Belgium in emergency. He was in catatonic depression. That uh, month he spent in Sachsenhausen, remember, in 1939, the one that had sort of produced such a a, a psychological shock and, and breakdown for him, well, that would follow him the rest of his life. And that catatonic depression that he experienced in Israel was part of that. And Wolfgang, for the rest of his life, would go between that kind of catatonic depression and manic behavior. That's my memory of my uncle Wolfgang is entirely, entirely due to the trauma that he experienced in 39 and then perhaps again in 48. So Heda, by the end of the 1940s, has lost one son to heartbreak. Wolfgang, well, he hasn't died, but he's going to be a, a, a complicated person for her to live with for the rest of her life, a, a, a forever reminder of the hardships that he experienced and in the sense that she experienced. There was no way for her to ignore what had happened in the late 30s and the 40s. And in the meantime, Ruth, my grandmother, essentially had babies. She had four babies by the time this decade ends, and she'd have another six over the next 15 years. Ruth was always a much happier person than Hedda. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that she chose not to remember. And I think Hedda couldn't, did not have that luxury. She could not, not remember. We'll talk about the 50s next time. And um, I'm sorry I don't have a better story for this decade. It's just a really tough one. And, but I'm grateful that you're along with me for the ride as I discover these stories, behind the stories of my family. Thanks.